Y'all turn with me to Genesis chapter 42, Genesis 42. We're continuing our series on the life of Joseph, uh, Where is God? Uh, I want to remind you or, or let you know this week, we've got an important event in the life of the church. We have a quarterly business meeting coming up. That's this Wednesday night at six o'clock. It'll be in Hooper Chapel. We've been doing a Bible study on Colossians all through the summer and attendance has been really great. Thank you for those of you who've been there. Uh, so this week we'll start at six with the, with the uh, business meeting and then we'll move into the Bible study after that. If you want to just come for the business meeting and skip the Bible study, that's fine. I'll my ego will be okay, you know, I'll, I'll survive, but hope you'll be here this week. Uh, in this series, we've, we've talked about how what you think about God, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. As we've seen in the life of Joseph, life has a lot of ups and downs. Maybe your life doesn't have as many as Joseph, hopefully not. But anyway, throughout life, there are times when you wonder, where is God? What is he doing? Why is this happening to me? And in the midst of those times, what you believe about God is essential. Joseph was raised by a man named Jacob, not a perfect man by any means, but a man with a strong faith in God, and he passed it down to his son. And that's what saved Joseph in many cases where he would have lost all hope, where he would have become discouraged, where he may have even taken his own life or given up. What you believe about God matters intensely. There is one God, only one God. Our culture would say, hey, whatever you want to believe is fine. Just believe what makes sense to you. But there's one God, and it's essential that we know him for who he is, and that we believe about him the things that are true, and that can direct the rest of our lives. That will direct and dictate the way we will live. Now, raise your hand if you've ever heard this statement when you, when you encounter someone who is rude, maybe someone who lets out a windows rattling burp. Uh, there is a member of our family that burps louder than any human being ought to. I'm not going to tell you who, but anyway, when you hear someone or see someone do something really rude, have you ever heard someone say, what were you raised by wolves? Raise your hand if you ever heard that. Yeah, okay. Second to that is, were you born in a barn? But were you raised by wolves? Now, where does that come from? There's actually stories down through history, dozens, maybe even hundreds of stories of what we call feral children, children who were lost, who were abandoned, who ran away from home. One way or another, as small children ended up living in the wild on their own and developed the characteristics of animals. And in fact, some, when they were found, uh, were in the company of animals. They had literally been raised by, uh, by goats, by monkeys, by dogs or wolves or even bears or leopards. Now, uh, of course, we all think of the Jungle Book and Mowgli living out in the, in the wilderness, in the, in the jungle with all the animals and talking animals. And of course, that's fiction. That's, that's Rudyard Kipling. But, but there are documented stories. A lot of these stories are just fictional. A lot of them are legends, but there are documented stories of feral children, children who were raised with or by animals. And they're most of them very, very sad stories. These children will be found. Uh, they don't know that they're human. Uh, they have a hard time adapting to human society, uh, standing upright, eating cooked food, wearing clothing, speaking human language, and oftentimes they will run away. They will live out their lives in institutions or even die. And, but, but there is a story 
of a feral child that ends happily, the most recent story I've read. Back in 1991, a little boy named John Sabunya was found by villagers in Uganda. He was found in the company of a pack of monkeys. Um, apparently, he'd been living with them for quite a while. They'd been sharing their food with him. Um, and John was, a, was taken to a Christian orphanage where he was taught the gospel, where he was uh, nurtured and loved. In 1999, eight years after he was found, he accompanied a boy's choir from that orphanage to England where they sang uh, and did a, did a choir tour. And he was the subject of a BBC documentary. Shortly after, he was adopted and lived a, has lived a fairly normal life. But just think about this for a moment. Imagine what it's like to raise a child like that. Those of us who are parents, isn't it hard enough just to teach a child to walk, to talk, to go to the bathroom appropriately, <laughs> to eat with good manners? This is hard enough with a normal child. What about a child that's been wild all this time? How long does that take? How much patience does that require? How many hours of instruction? In a way, and the reason I'm bringing that up, that's a great picture of salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is you and I were lost. We were lost in the, in the jungle, far from our Father, and He came and He rescued us. Now, when, when God came into your life, when Jesus was introduced to you and you accepted Him as your Savior, at that moment, you were justified and you'll be His forever. And that's what we often talk about when we talk about salvation, but that's just the beginning of salvation. That was the beginning of a process of us becoming really human, becoming like our Father, and that takes a lifetime. God has to teach us how to stand on two feet. When we want to scrabble around on all fours, He has to teach us to walk like Him and talk like Him and, and speak like Him and, and think like Him and, and do the right things. And that's why Philippians 2.12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You could misunderstand that. Work out your salvation. Sounds like work so you can earn it. The Bible's very clear. We don't earn anything. Salvation is given to us. But what Paul's saying in Philippians is, work so that you can live like you're saved. You've been adopted into his family. Now live like a member of his family, not like a wild animal. And, and the problem with this is, for a lot of Christians, we have the idea that maturity, becoming fully human in God, means that we go to church, and we follow some rules, and we stop saying bad words, and all that's good, but all that can be faked. I mean, all that, if that's all you have, it's like putting an Armani suit on a feral child. You're still an animal. You just look human. So what does it mean to become like God, to become like your father, to to become fully human, to be saved. I think the surest sign that is happening in your life is there is peace and there's harmony and there's love in all your relationships. You want to know how your maturity is working, how your sanctification is taking place and the progress you're making? Look at your relationship with your parents, with your children if you have them, with your spouse if you're married, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with non-Christians, with people who otherwise would be your enemies. How are your relationships with those people? That tells how mature you are and whether you're really growing or not. That's why Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So right here at the beginning, before we get into the scripture, I just want to challenge you, think of a relationship in your life, or maybe two or three, that isn't where it ought to be, 
We all have them. Think of a relationship in your life that could be better. This is going to get very, very personal. I'm not going to call you out from the pulpit, but you might feel like I am. But if, I'm, if I do my job, some healing could take place here this morning. Some lives could get changed for better. Okay? That's my prayer. So, in the story of Joseph, let's recap where we are. Uh, Joseph, of course, if you haven't been with us at all or you don't know the story, he was a 17-year-old guy. He was one of 12 sons, 13 children in all, a very dysfunctional family, four mothers uh, and, uh, among those 13 children. Um, and Joseph was daddy's favorite, and his father made no secret of that. The, the other brothers were resentful of him, and so when they had an opportunity to get rid of him, they sold him into slavery and let their father believe he had been killed. Joseph was carried off to Egypt where he became the slave of a man named Potiphar. Uh, he was very well respected in Potiphar's house and then Potiphar mistakenly believed that he had tried to wait, rape Potiphar's wife and so he threw Joseph into prison where Joseph was forgotten for years until one day Pharaoh, king of Egypt, released him from prison and asked him to interpret a dream that Pharaoh had had. The dream foretold there would be seven years of famine and seven years of plenty, and Joseph, being a very bold and self-confident man, in spite of all that had happened, he told the king what he should do as king. And the Pharaoh was so impressed with his wisdom and his confidence, he said, I want this kid to be my right-hand man. And so if this was a movie, it might end right here with Joseph going from the pit of despair to the pinnacle of power, to the, to the palace. But it doesn't end here. By the way, let me just side note with this. Some of you know, speaking of movies, there was a, a, a movie that came out last year uh, nominated for Best Picture called The Revenant. It's based on a true story. You may or may not know that. A guy named Hugh Glass, a trapper in the 1800s, was mauled by a bear. His companions left him to die. Now, in the movie, the whole story is a revenge story. Hugh Glass has to recover, regain his strength so he can hunt down the people who betrayed him. But in real life, in real life, in the actual story, Hugh Glass did recover, did find his friends months later, and he forgave them. Isn't it interesting that in our culture, we find revenge more interesting than forgiveness? We find vengeance more entertaining than reconciliation. That should say something about us, shouldn't it? So what happens in this story? Joseph has now gained power. Does he gain revenge too? Let's take a look. Chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? My wife says that to me once in a while too. Um, he continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. 
from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Now, quickly, three things about that. First of all, um, notice that Jacob has 10 remaining sons, 11 remaining sons, but he only sends 10. Why does he keep Benjamin at home? Benjamin is one of only two sons he had with Rachel. Rachel was his favorite wife, the wife that he truly loved. Joseph had been his favorite, the oldest son of Rachel. Now Joseph is presumed dead. He's turned his attention to Benjamin. Jacob hasn't learned He still has a favorite. He's still playing favorites among his sons. And think about how that must have made the the other brothers feel. Benjamin, he stays home. The others, they go get grain, but Benjamin is untouchable. Secondly, the brothers don't recognize Joseph. You may go, well, how how can that be? Well, number one, they weren't expecting to see their brother ever again. Number two, it's been, he was a 17-year-old kid when they last saw him. Now he's in his 30s. Third, he's dressed like an Egyptian. He's got the shaved head. He's got the Egyptian dress on Nothing makes sense to them. They just look like older versions of themselves. And so Joseph recognizes them immediately. And and third of all, what is Joseph up to here? Joseph accuses them of being spies. We didn't read this part, but he actually has their brother Simeon arrested. Simeon is the second oldest brother in the family, second oldest son. Um, The oldest is Reuben. Reuben, on the day when Joseph was grabbed by his brothers and thrown into a well, Reuben was the one who intervened and said, hey, we can't kill him. The others wanted to kill him. And maybe this is why Joseph arrests Simeon instead of Reuben. But I think what Joseph is up to is, number one, he's putting fear into their hearts. He sends them home. He says, here's your grain. You take it and go. I'm keeping your brother here. You said that you're not spies. You said that you're 11 sons of one man and your brother stayed home. We'll prove it. You come back with your little brother and then I'll give you more grain. Until then, don't ever look at me again. Now, what is he doing? He's getting payback. Now, he could just kill them on the spot, but he, he wants to do one better. He wants them to feel real fear. He wants them to feel some measure of what he felt when they threw him in that well all those years ago. Plus, maybe, just maybe, and I'm just speculating here, maybe, maybe he wants them to go home and open those sacks and see that money in the sack and be afraid, and he wants their dad to look at them and say, what, did you trade your brother for this grain? Maybe. That's what he has in mind. Now, time passes, and I think it's significant that Jacob doesn't send the boys back with Benjamin. In fact, look with me at verse 38 of chapter 42. Verse 38 says, but Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. Which son is he talking about, by the way? Benjamin, the little boy, the the, the youngest. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Think about what these words must have done to those nine brothers. He's the only one I have left. And they wanted to say, what about us? Aren't we your sons too? He must have cut like a knife. It must have wounded them deeply. They'd always known, but I doubt he'd ever said it in such clear terms before. He's the only one I have. 
Now, I know that Joseph's the good guy in this story, and, and, and the brothers did an awful thing, but right now let's speak a word of mercy for these brothers. They've been through a lot. They feel deep wounds. Some of you understand this. Some of you know what it's like to love someone and not get love back. Some of you know what it's like to see someone else get the love you need. That's what they're feeling right here. And they not only heard him say he's the only one left, they, they have the knowledge that their father has let Simeon sit in an Egyptian jail all this time, watching that grain run slowly out because Simeon doesn't count. Neither do they. And eventually Jacob finally changes his mind. Eventually Jacob says, okay, we need to do something. We're going to starve. Okay, take him, take Benjamin, but promise me you'll protect him. And the boys all promise to give their lives rather than let that boy suffer harm. And they go to Egypt with a great fear in their hearts. And when they get there, the governor, Joseph, he's, he's a different kind of guy. He walks up to them. He greets them warmly. He releases Simeon. He throws a big feast. He greets Benjamin, secretly his little brother, with a great embrace. He, 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 he feasts them all with, with wonderful food and wine. He gives Benjamin a double portion. They don't know what's going on. They look around the room and realize he seated us in order on the table in order of our ages. How could he know this? To them, I'm sure they're thinking this guy's some kind of wizard. And then afterwards, he loads up their sacks with all the grain they could possibly want and sends them away. It's wonderful, isn't it? They're thinking to themselves, we got our brother back. Nothing bad happened to Benjamin. We got all this grain. Dad's going to be so pleased with us. Everything worked out great. And suddenly, suddenly they hear the sounds of horses. And they turn, and here comes armed men from Egypt saying, stop. Stop right now. You have stolen from my master. You have taken his silver cup, the cup that he uses for divination. Do you not understand what you've done here? One of you is going to die. And they all swear, no, no, none of us would do that. We're men of honor. You feel free to search our sacks. And yes, whoever has your cup, he will die right here, right now. And they dismount and they open their sacks and they're horrified to discover that sitting in the mouth of that sack is the silver cup, the sack belonging to Benjamin, of all people. And they rip their garments in despair. But right now, guess what's happening? We're at a crossroads in the story. Because right now, these brothers have an opportunity to repeat history. They have an opportunity, once again, to get rid of daddy's favorite. And this time, they won't even have blood on their hands. All they have to do is just let him go back to Egypt with this man who says, I'm not putting him to death. I'm taking him back. He's going to be a slave to my master. And they'll be rid of him forever. And this time, they can go home with a straight face and an uneasy, and an easy conscience and say, Dad, we did all we could. Right now, Joseph has the opportunity to spend the rest of his life with his little brother Benjamin and never see those brothers again and never have to deal with them again and know that when the grain runs out, they'll starve to death and it's not his problem. Right now, everybody's going to get what they want. But what is God up to here? What is God up to? If you know the book of Genesis and you know the scriptures, you know that there's a bigger picture. There always is. We, we have a tendency to look at just what's going on in our lives right now in our narrow circumstances. God looks at the big picture. He's looking hundreds, thousands of years ahead of time. God knows that 400 years from now, the, the, the children of Israel will be slaves in the land of Egypt, and God's going to raise up a man named Moses who's going to be this mighty deliverer, and through all kinds of miracles, there's going to be this amazing exodus that is going to be the, the 
the key decisive event in the founding of the nation of Israel and really a, a touchstone for God's people for all time. An opportunity for him to show this is how powerful I am. This is how mighty I am to save. And so in the big picture of things, God is manipulating history to get this one family to go to Egypt so that all of that can happen hundreds of years later. You think God is looking that far ahead in your life? Absolutely he is. You think your life is that important? I guarantee it is. But on the narrow focus, in the, in the smaller scale, in the short term, what God is up to right now is reconciling this family. Because God doesn't rest when sons don't talk to fathers and when brothers don't talk to brothers and husbands don't talk to wives and people are angry with one another in neighborhoods and, and workplaces and communities. God is about reconciliation, always, always. And that's what he's doing here and in order for reconciliation to happen, I need to be very clear about this. So if you're asleep, wake up. Here's the point of the message. In order for reconciliation to take place, two things have to happen every single time. Someone has to repent and someone has to forgive. In order for any reconciliation to take place, no matter what re relationship you're talking about, whether it's your coworker, whether it's uh, your neighbor, whether it's the guy you can't stand, whether it's your, your kid's teacher, whether it's your ex-wife, whether it's your brother, your son, if there's tension in your relationship, if there's separation, if there's anger, bitterness, if there's anything that shouldn't be there, two things have to happen or it will never be right. Someone has to repent and someone has to forgive. Now, let me talk about those two things real quickly before we get to our story, because I want you to make, I want to make sure you know what I mean when I say repent and forgive. First of all, repentance, repentance. When I was, uh, when I was 18 years old, my daughter goes off to college in, in less than two weeks, scaring the snot out of me. But when I was her age, I went off to the University of Houston. I lived in Taub Hall on the campus of U of H, right there in the quad, and uh, 206 Taub, in fact. My roommate was a guy named Carl. Carl was a couple of years ahead of me. He graduated at the end of my sophomore year. Carl was a great guy, and he was extremely neat. He was neater than any young male ought to be, okay? And if you got in a time machine right now and you went back to 1988 and you went into our dorm room, you would walk in and you would immediately see which side of the room was Carl's because Carl's bed was perfectly made and it had three pillows and it had a little hutch on his desk with all of his books neatly filed and his desk was completely clean and everything was put up, his clothes were hung, everything was where it ought to be. It looked like the poster or the brochure that they, they give at, at the housing department to say, hey, here's what our dorms look like. And then you would scan your eyes to the right and you'd see my side of the room that looked like it was an avalanche. You know, there was just stuff on every surface. And sometimes when I had a paper to write and I looked over at Carl and he was done with his homework and he'd be sitting in his bed reading or whatever, I'd say, hey, Carl, can I use your desk? I have a paper to write. Because it was easier to use his clean desk than to clean my desk. And this happened occasionally. And Carl never gave me any trouble about it. But one night, the only time in our two years together that he ever expressed any anger one night I said, hey, Carl, can I use your desk? Because I've got a paper to write. And he put down his book and he swung his legs around the bed and he looked at me and I'll never forget his words. He spoke to me very slowly as if speaking to a small child. He said, Jeff, the words I'm about to say are going to shock and confuse you, 
but you have to clean up your desk. And that was it. And, and it didn't confuse me. It did shock me because he'd never talked to me that way before, but I knew what he meant. And, and he was right. You see, I thought we had this great relationship. I thought we got along great. I didn't know that all along I was annoying the snot out of him. And the rupture in our relationship was never going to get right until I cleaned up my desk. It was as simple as that. Folks, here's what repentance is. Repentance in any relationship is not saying, oh, yeah, well, I'm not perfect. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Repentance is saying, okay, I admit, this is my fault, and I'm going to clean this desk so we can be right. And if you're honest, if you are really honest, you look at any relationship you have, you can, you can find some areas of your life where you need to clean things up because he or she is holding that against you. And that's what's keeping you apart. And I, I've done marital counseling in the past that has broken my heart because both husband and wife came in and both of them wanted me to tell the other one they were wrong. And neither one of them were willing to say, okay, I need to clean up my desk. I need to focus on cleaning up what's messed up in my life. It's my fault, not just hers, not just his. Parents and children, where the parents can't understand why she acts the way she does, and they don't realize there's things they need to clean up. Where she needs to realize they're going to treat you with respect when you actually clean up these things. In every relationship where there's tension, there is something you need to clean up. And it's easy to spot their messy desk. But what about yours? What about yours? Repentance is dealing with that stuff. Repentance is being honest. And, and let's, let's get to the heart of the gospel here. There is no salvation without repentance. The first words of Jesus in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 115, it says, Jesus went around, sums up his message this way, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the gospel. You don't just believe, you have to repent first. You come to God and you say, look at, the, look at this mess, Lord. Help me clean it up. And God says, absolutely, that's why I'm here. And that's how we get saved. And if I could do anything for this church, if I could wish anything upon this church that would transform us forever for good, it wouldn't be that some millionaire would give us $10 jillion. That'd be all right. It wouldn't be that we'd all memorize huge chunks of Scripture or that we'd learn to obey the Ten Commandments. All that's fine. It would be that all of us would develop repentant hearts. In fact, if you want to know what the difference is between a Christian and an otherwise moral person, because you can be highly moral and, and be Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or irreligious. They can be absolutely as moral and ethical as we are. The difference is a Christian is someone who is repentant. A Christian is someone, a mature Christian is someone who, if you pinned them down at any moment and said, what is there in your life that God is working on right now? They would say without hesitation, here's where I'm sinning right now. Here's where I need the grace of God to transform me. Here's where every day I need to pray for forgiveness because they're constantly aware of their own need for repentance. Repent. 
There's no reconciliation without it. Number two, forgive. And forgiveness doesn't mean what we often think it means. Jesus, of course, in the Lord's Prayer taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He told us a parable about a man who was forgiven this massive debt by the king and then went out straight from there and found a friend of his who had loaned him a few bucks and began to choke the man because he hadn't paid him back yet. And the king found out about that man's unforgiveness and he threw him in jail. God takes forgiveness seriously. He wants us to be forgiving as we've been forgiven. Jesus practiced what he preached when he was hanging there dying for our sins. The very men who were responsible, directly responsible for putting him on that cross, stood at his feet, spitting in his face and calling him in the most vile names possible. And Jesus responded by saying, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. We are not just commanded to forgive. If we're saved, we will forgive. And to not forgive is as bad and evil as whatever that person has done to you. Not only that, forgiveness is a blessing to us. There's a teacher at a Christian college who tried to illustrate this to his students in a creative way. He, he came to class one day with his huge sack of potatoes, and he handed each student a Sharpie and a plastic bag. He said, I want you to go into this bag of potatoes and pick out a potato for every person in your life who's ever hurt you, every person in your life who you don't like, every person in your life who gets on your nerve, every person in your life who you feel anger, bitterness, or, or, or disgust towards, and I want you to write, your name, write their name on that potato and put it in your sack. And the students went through it, and they had a lot of fun thinking about, you know, oh, this terrible person. And, and they, some of the students were very proud. Look at all the people who I have something against. I, well, my life is really tough because we like to play the victim, right? Teacher said, you got to carry that sack until you forgive each of those people. And you know what happens over a few days? Those potatoes sprouted eyes and got smelly. The sack got heavier, nastier. Students soon discovered that carrying around these burdens, these grudges, isn't such fun after all. My old, my old seminary professor, Calvin Miller, said something I'll never forget. He said, a person who holds a grudge is like a cannibal trying to commit suicide by nibbling himself to death. Someone else said it less humorously. If you hold a grudge against somebody else, it's like drinking poison every day, hoping one of these days it's going to kill them. When we forgive someone, we set ourselves free. We need to recognize that. Now, let me explain what I mean by forgiveness. Because a lot of people say, well, how can I forgive? They hurt me so bad. Listen, I cannot possibly comprehend how some of you have been hurt. I don't know the stories. I know a few. But I know enough to know that in a room this size, there are people who are carrying wounds that I cannot possibly wrap my mind around. And I'm not saying forgiveness is easy. And when I say forgiveness, I don't mean getting over it. There are wounds that you don't just get over. I don't mean forgetting about it because you can't force yourself. You can't will yourself to forget the pain. And I don't mean that you go on trusting that person. If, you've been, if, if someone has stolen from you in a business deal, forgiving them doesn't mean you continue to do business with them. If you're a woman whose husband beats her up, forgiveness doesn't mean you move back in with him. Forgiveness means you release the right you think you have to vengeance. You release that sense that I'm going to get justice someday. You release that yearning for them to get theirs, get what's coming to them. You 
Forgiveness means you take them to God and you say, Lord, I'm going to give them up to you and I'm going to pray for them. I'm not going to wish ill on them anymore. If something bad happens to them, I'm not going to rejoice. I'm going to pray for them just like you commanded. And although I don't feel it in my heart, I'm going to treat them with kindness, the kindness they never treated me with. That's forgiveness. It is an act of will, not emotion. It is an act of will, and it is something you can do. And people say, well, I can't forgive them until they say they're sorry. Baloney. That's the Greek, by the way, baloney. Um, Forgiveness is an act of will. You forgive them today. You release them today. Whether they choose to repent is between them and God. Again, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying if you do what God said, you'll be glad. You will be thankful. Now, let's get back to Joseph and his brothers. Chapter 44 verse 30. Chapter 44, verse 30 shows us what the brothers did was they went back. Instead of going home and being rid of Benjamin, they went back to Egypt to plead for his life. And of all the brothers, the last one you'd expect, Judah, stepped forward. Now, some of you know this. You were with us a couple weeks ago. You know this. Judah was the very same man whose original idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery. And now he steps forward and says, arrest me and let Benjamin go home. Look with me at, at what Judah says in verse 30. I'm not even on the right page. Verse 30. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the the misery that would come on my father. Do you hear what's happening there? Judah is saying, let me be punished. I didn't do this crime, but let me be punished and let the boy go home. And something breaks inside Joseph at that very moment. He sees repentance in his brother, who he never thought he would see it in. He sees his whole cast of brothers stand up for Benjamin like they never stood up for him. He sees that they've changed. They've repented. They've cleaned up their desk. And something inside Joseph breaks. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. I love that verse because you can imagine these, these men are standing there one moment thinking they're about to die, and suddenly the guy who has their life in his hands breaks down crying. He's just lost it. This is not good, right? They're scared to death. Verse 4, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. 
For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Do you hear what has just happened? This is true forgiveness. This isn't Joseph saying, okay, you've done an extraordinary thing. I I can't be the jerk here. I'll go ahead and shake your hand and make nice. He's not saying that. He's saying, listen, Don't even worry about what you did to me. Was it awful? Yes. And did I hate you back then? Absolutely. But now I look back and I see how God took an awful thing and he turned it into a good thing. If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here to save all these lives, including yours. So don't even worry about it. This is true forgiveness. This is a man who says, not only do I not bear you ill will, I can look back and see how all of this was part of God's plan. So it's good. It's good. Don't worry. We're good. We're brothers again. God has mended this family. If you go on and read, you see how Joseph got to see Jacob again and and the whole family ended up coming to Egypt and living together for years to come. It's a beautiful story. But it all happened because one man, Judah, stepped forward and said, I repent. I'm not going to talk about how you were daddy's favorite and you had it coming. I'm not going to talk about how I I had all this pressure on me and it's not really my fault. I'm just going to say it. It's my fault. So take me and let the boy go. And that's what reconciled the family. Somebody repented and then somebody forgave. And you know what's really, really cool about that? If you go way ahead in the Bible, someone in the line of Judah, one of his distant Uh, descendants, but direct descendants, a man named Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter, the son of Joseph, took that philosophy to 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 its extreme extent. And he didn't just offer himself up for a family member. He offered himself up for all of us. He said, I didn't do the crime, but I'll do the punishment. Punish me and let them go. And that's why we're saved. That's why we're healed. And let's face it, we're all feral children, just by nature. We're wild, and we're disgusting, and we don't know how to live. And Jesus has rescued us, and he wants us to walk and talk and live like him. And that means right now, some of us in this room need to go directly to somebody else. Maybe somebody in this room, maybe somebody far away, maybe somebody sitting at home right now or somewhere else. Some of us, before the sun goes down, need to have a conversation with someone and say, you know what? I'm at fault. Here's what I've done. I I confess it. Don't justify it. Don't say, okay, you did this and I did this. No, it's all me. I'm just telling you what I did to contribute to this problem, and I'm sorry. Some of us need to do that today. Some of us need to forgive someone. Some of us need to to just let it go and just take it to the Lord. And don't make some big theatrical production about it unless you know they've been waiting to hear from you. Don't go up to that guy who, who's a big jerk and say, by the way, you are a, a horse's behind, but I forgive you. Just forgive. Just take that step of obedience of saying, Lord, I'm going to choose to love them instead of hate them. I'm going to choose to pray for them instead of hoping for their downfall. I don't want to. I don't feel like it, but I know that's the path to freedom, and that's how reconciliation takes place.